Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. Entertained through violence. Kind of like we are, but okay, anyway. And, And so to... To create a punishment for a people that are entertained by violence, it has to be extremely brutal. And so they created this punishment called the scourging. In Latin, it is called the verbiratio. And it was as bad as it sounded. See, the victim, Jesus in this case, would be stripped of his clothes. He would be naked. And he would be tied with his hands above his head to a post. And then they would bring out this whip called a cat of nine tails. But but it wasn't like the cat of nine tails that they would have like on a, on a, a British sailing ship, which was terrible, by the way, where it was a group of, of knotted ropes. No, this would be leather thongs. with bits of metal and fish hooks and jagged shards sewn into it. And and the whole point behind this is they would give this to two soldiers and, and they would beat him until the soldiers were tired. Like that was the standard. It wasn't done until the soldiers couldn't physically get up, until their arms are exhausted. This was such a brutal punishment that in and of itself it could be a death sentence. Many people endured what Christ endured and died from it. As the lashes went across him, the small bits of iron would tenderize the flesh and then the hooks would dig in and as they would pull it out, it would rip chunks out. If anybody here has ever seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, I've only ever seen it once. I I can't watch it again. It was absolutely the most brutal thing that I have ever seen. And that's what happened to Christ. And, and And in this bizarre, upside down calculus in Pilate's mind, this is Pilate trying to help Jesus. Pilate desperately does not want to kill Jesus. He does not want this man's blood on his hands. He doesn't want to be responsible for the death of this righteous man. And so he hands him over to these professional sadists who beat him literally almost to death. And and if it could get worse, it does get worse. Because see, these soldiers do what all soldiers do. And I mean that. I was a soldier. We have a dark sense of humor. If you were to listen into the jokes that soldiers tell each other, it would horrify you. But it is the way that men of violence deal with violence. It's the same kind of jokes that paramedics tell each other or police officers tell to each other. These things that aren't funny... 
that they all laugh at. Dark humor, we call it. Psychologists say that this is absolutely a very human way of dealing with trauma. And these, make no mistake, these men have been traumatized. These men who have signed up for 25 years in the legions, who have watched violence at close hand, who have killed and seen their friends killed, who have watched violence as a form of entertainment and have had this same thing done to them when they are disobedient. These men have been traumatized. And they do what all traumatized men do. They exhibit dark humor. And what do they do? They take this man who is supposed to be the king of the Jews. And they're like, hey, we got the king of the Jews. We've ripped him to pieces. Now, you know what we should do? You know what would be cool? Here, here, go grab a cloak. You know what would be funny? If we dressed him up like a king. And so they go and they grab an old legionary officer's cloak. Right? So the legionary officer would wear this bright red cloak, but the dye was cheap. And so over time, the, the water and the, the rain would kind of leach it out, and it would, it would go from from deep dark red to kind of this lighter purple. And then they try to re-dye it and it would get funky looking and purple. And so they grab this nasty old purple cloak and they throw it over him. Because purple is the color of royalty. It's like, oh yeah, I get the purple cloak. Yeah, put that on him. Okay, well he doesn't look like a king yet. I know, let's grab some thorns and we'll make him a crown. Here's your crown, King Jesus. And they cram this thorny crown onto his head. And so now, in addition to being beaten almost to death and having chunks of his flesh open, almost to the point where you can see his bones as he bleeds profusely, now his blood sheets down from his head. Brothers, this is macabre. And they, they, put, a, they put a reed in his hand as a scepter. And what do they do then? Well, then they start to mock him, Right? They start spitting in his face and saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they take his scepter and they hit him in the face with it. And this is horrible, right? This, this should make our stomachs not up, but there is something else that is going on here. There's yet another reason that we have it in here. It's not just so that we will feel bad about what happened to Jesus. I, I want you to understand the irony here. Jesus is the king of the Jews. Everything that they are saying about him is true. And yet his coronation, the only people that acknowledge Jesus publicly as the king of the Jews are this group of deeply broken Roman soldiers. So he is he is the king of the Jews. And his people have rejected him. He was the true king of Israel. And yet the only time that he's publicly acknowledged is by the enemies of God. See, no matter how hard they try, the wicked people of our world cannot help but declare the kingship of God even as they insult and deny him. Even in the language that they use, the enemies of God 
have to acknowledge him. You think about our own time right now. What is the thing that we are beaten over the head with constantly? We're constantly beaten over the head with this idea of, of justice, tolerance, of love. Guys, these are not qualities. These are not categories that the world can invent. Left to itself, the world worships power only. And yet, these people have to use Christian categories in their heresy. In the same way that the Roman soldiers declared inadvertently the kingship of the man that they're about to kill. Woven throughout the pattern of God's grace and redemption is this, this line of dark humor as we see just how stupid people really are. How all of our pretensions, all of our pride is demonstrated to be empty. Well, after having Jesus brutally beaten and mocked, Pilate displays him to the crowd. We read, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. And so Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And the connotation here is not just the man, it's look at this guy. Look at this poor man. Look at this broken, bleeding Dying man, is he really such a threat? Do we really have to crucify him? Is that really where we want to go? Again, Pilate, in his twisted brokenness, is still trying desperately not to have this man's blood on his hands. You see, the die has been cast. Because God's people do not respond to the pitiful nature of Jesus with mercy. Indeed, we, we see this predicted in Isaiah 53. That almost a thousand years before this, Isaiah predicted what would happen to the Messiah when he came into contact with his people. He demonstrated what the ways in which the Messiah would suffer for us. In the song of the suffering sermon, he says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. See, the Jewish authorities look on their king and they despise him. They don't honor him. They see him as... Meat for the butcher. 
And so even as Pilate is trying to get them to let him go, the chief priests and the officers look at him and they say, Crucify him! Crucify him! And, and, and again, right? we look at Pilate. Pilate is scrambling now. He's frustrated right now. He looks at him and he goes, Crucify him yourself! You do the dirty thing. I don't want to do it. You take him. See, Pilate, Pilate knows the Jews can't actually crucify him. At this point, he just wants them to take Jesus away and stone him or kill him on their own. Don't make me do it. The Jews, and especially Caiaphas, wants one thing out of this whole deal. They want Jesus publicly killed. It's not enough to just kill him in the dark. It's not enough just to have him disappear like some Russian general. Never to be seen from again. No, Jesus has to be publicly and humiliatingly killed so that it will once and for all destroy his movement. They need his followers to see this man who was a miracle worker and the so-called king of Israel. They need him on a cross, dying slowly, so that his followers will be crushed. They need it done, and they need it done today. And in their anger, in their frustration, right? You see how everybody at this point is tired and frustrated and making terrible decisions. Everybody here is under an immense amount of press. And when we we come under pressure, here's what happens. When we come under pressure, who we actually are begins to come out. See, when we put pressure on somebody, you see who they really are. All the pretense goes away. All the games we play disappear. All the masks that we have on go away. This is one of the reasons why community and church is so hard. Okay? Don't say yeah like it is. Come on. That's why church is so hard, right? Because when you are in an intimate relationship with people over a long period of time, you begin to see who they are. As pressure starts to come down on us and the masks come off, we begin to see how the make-believe ends. We get to see the things that maybe we don't really want to share, the things that we don't really want to talk about. And so as the pressure ratchets up on them, the Jews begin to describe themselves as they truly are. Instead of this, all this, this talk about Jesus being a, a revolutionary or Jesus saying that they shouldn't pay taxes, they shout out the real reason that they want him dead. He has claimed to be the son of God. We have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. He has committed blasphemy. Jesus didn't die because he was a revolutionary. He didn't die because he fed the poor. He didn't die because he healed the sick. He died because he claimed to be God. And at that, Pontius Pilate freaks out. See, Pilate's already worried. And just because Pilate is a cold and calculating 
amoral man. It does not mean that he is not deeply superstitious the way that most Romans were deeply superstitious. And and, and so now everything starts to come together. And and he runs into the other room and 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 he starts to talk to Jesus. And he says, who are you? Who are you? I mean, what are we dealing with here? In a Roman's life, if, you, if somebody said that you were a son of God, what it meant is that you were, you were like a demigod. You were like one of the, one of the superhuman guys that came when a, when God, when a god would, would uh, have a child with an earthly woman. And there, there were these guys that would run around and they would do amazing things. And, and he doesn't know what he's dealing with right now. He's like, what, do I got my, what have I gotten wrapped up in? What is this? Who are you? And you know what Jesus says? Nothing. Not a thing. Jesus is on trial for his life. He has been beaten with an inch of his life. And when he is asked who he is, he says nothing. At this point, Jesus has just got to say, yes, I'm the son of God. Oh, look, my back is natural, is magically healed. And Pilate will probably turn the soldiers on the Jews and kill all of them. Like, like a guy who's really excited about Christianity but is, is super immature. We've, we've had that happen a couple of times here. We, we got protested a while back and one of the guys was at the back of the sanctuary and, and he was, man, he was just like trying to figure stuff out and, and, uh, and one of our deacons went out to talk to him and this guy, like, he's like, oh, okay, I know what to do. I'm going to go out and fight this dude. We're like, no, 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 don't do that, don't do that. That's probably what Pilate would have done. But Jesus doesn't say anything. He doesn't respond at all. And then Pilate looks at him and says, do you not understand who I am? I have the ability, I have the authority to have you crucified and you won't talk to me. Why won't you talk to me, Jesus? Tell me who you are. Give me a reason. Give me something. And Jesus picks his head up and looks at him and says, you have no authority that has not been given to you by my father. You have no authority that has not been given to you by my father in heaven. See, Pilate thinks he has authority. Pilate thinks he's the one that is in charge. He's not, actually. The one who is actually in charge is God. The one who has actual authority is God. And then Jesus says something else. He says, almost like as if he's trying to help Pilate. He says, listen, the ones who handed me over to you bear the greater guilt. Like, he, like, he's, trying to, like he's trying to help Pilate figure out how to crucify him. Like Pilate is the man who has all of the authority and he has to be counseled by Jesus on how to kill him. That's how absurd this scene is. That's how absurd the, the, the extreme reversal of power is in this situation. Pilate, the all-powerful Roman governor, has to be comforted by the man he's going to torture to death. And this so often happens with broken and lost people. Christ's response doesn't make Pilate feel any better. In fact, now he decides that he's going to use his authority. He's going to use his authority to release Jesus. 
Like he can somehow overcome all of the chain of events that have led up to this. He is going to take it on his own power. He's going to upend all of the plans that the Jews have and ultimately all the plans that God has. And so he goes out and we read that he begins to try to have Jesus released. It says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. See, they know their man. They know who Pilate is. They know deep down inside, underneath this kind of thin veneer of, of superstition and this kind of thin veneer of not wanting to kill Jesus as, as he's conflicted, they know that deep down, Pilate is nothing more than a political opportunist. And that what he wants more than anything else in the entire world is to get promoted out of Judea and go to a civilized place. They also know that he is serving one of the most narcissistic and paranoid men that have ever sat on the throne of the empire. Tiberius Caesar is a recluse who lives on the Isle of Capri and has delegated all of his authority to a man named Sejanus. Now, Sejanus was the the prefect of the Praetorian Guard. He's basically like if the head of the CIA and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was the same guy. He's like the head spy, and he is in control of the secret police. And Sejanus has been terrorizing Rome for the last 10 years. The term friend of Caesar is a position that you had. If you were a friend of Caesar, you were safe. If you were not a friend of Caesar, then you ended up disappearing. Now, we know that Pilate was a friend of Sejanus. And we know that right before this, Sejanus had fallen. That somebody got it into their head and killed Sejanus. So Pilate already knows that his position is a little bit precarious. And if he is denounced publicly by the Jews that it will not go well for him. That he could lose his position, he could lose his power, he could lose his life. And so the Jews are basically making this threat to him. This man is a revolutionary, he has called for the downfall of Caesar, and if you don't kill him, you are not a friend of Caesar. They're attacking him where he lives. They're attacking his job and his livelihood. And you begin to see who a person is when you attack their job and their livelihood. I spent a huge amount of my life not obeying God because I could not imagine what it would be like to quit my job. I was desperately afraid of not having health insurance. I was desperately afraid of not having retirement. And, and as we've said over and over here, we know what we worship by what we fear to lose. So I want to ask you this morning, what are you afraid to lose? Are you afraid to lose? Are you afraid to lose your job? Are you afraid to lose your comfortable middle class life? Are you, are you afraid to lose your house? Your car? What, are you, what is it that you wake up at night? Is it your health? Maybe you, you see yourself as this young, strapping, healthy, fit person. That's how I see myself. Doesn't have to be accurate, by the way. 
But we worship what we fear to lose, and Pilate worshipped his own success. And the Jews, who were master manipulators, understood this. And so they put the screws to him in just the right place. And you know what Pilate did? He cratered. He folded like a bad hand of cards. We read that, so when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, in Aramaic, the Gabbatha. Now, it was this day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, we read. This is the hour that they would normally kill the lambs for the Passover meal. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. See, when push came to, when push came to shove, Pilate chose his career over Christ. And when push came to shove, the Jews chose Caesar over their Messiah. And at the hour of the Passover sacrifice, Pilate delivered him over to be crucified. So who's responsible? Who is ultimately responsible for the death of Christ? Is it the Jews who moved heaven and earth to see this man killed, who fought tooth and nail, pulled every string? Is it Pilate who had all of the authority and could have freed him with a word, but who ultimately sold out for the sake of his career? Well, I want to read a little bit more out of the book of Isaiah because it has a lot to say about this. See, Jesus said, It is the one who handed me over to you that bears the most guilt. And in Psalm 51, verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So who turned Jesus over to Pilate to be crucified? It was God. And he did it for us. See, we're the reason that Christ was crucified. It wasn't Pilate. Pilate was an instrument. It wasn't the Jews that they were culpable. It was us, our sin. See, Christ has been rejected by his people publicly, and finally he has been beaten and condemned by the Roman officials, and yet he is the one that's still fully in control of the situation. And his death exists for a reason. Jesus is not on trial at this point. Pilate and the Jewish authorities are on trial 
We are the ones that are on trial and the verdict is guilty. Every action, every word points to their guilt for all time. The people of Israel who six days prior had welcomed Jesus with shouts of Hosanna to the son of David are now screaming, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is giving in. And all of this happens because when we're given the choice between right and wrong, we always choose the wrong. Brothers and sisters, we sent Christ to the cross Our sin, our rebellion, all necessitated his sacrifice. One one theologian put it this way. He said that the only thing that we contribute to our own salvation is the sin that made it necessary. So as we study the passion, as we look at the passion, as we try to figure out who is responsible for this greatest of all sins, we've got to look at ourselves. And realize that all of the times that we turn from Jesus, all the time that we turn and love the darkness, those lead up to the sacrifice of Christ. So what do we do with that? Well, first thing that we need to do is we need to understand that there are no minor sins. See, we have a tendency as church people, we're great at this. We take the sins that we commit, right? This thing, the things that we like to do, and we describe them as minor sins. Just kind of, we, we, we even make a word, a peccadillo. That's, doesn't that sound good? A peccadillo. What does that mean? Well, that means it's a sin that I commit, right? It's something minor, like speeding, like screaming at other people in traffic, like cheating on my taxes. I don't cheat on my taxes, by the way. Okay? Just want to throw that out there, Chris. Lying, right? The things that we do in quiet and in silence and in the dark, these things that we don't think anybody sees or that don't think that anybody gets hurt by, these small and minor sins, all of them, all of them put Christ on the cross. There are no minor sins, guys. Every single deviation from God's law had to be paid for by the scourging and the crucifixion and the death of Christ. And if we will get that into our minds, then the next time that you think of something as small that you can just kind of overlook, that you can just kind of pass over, maybe it will sink into you that one of those lashes that stroked the back of Christ was that sin. And it'll make us think twice. Brothers and sisters, anything that deviates from the plan of God is sin. Anytime that we put our preferences over him, anytime that we step on on our own and demand our own way. But, but we also need to realize this too. That as immersed in sin as we are, and as dark as those sins are, Christ's death is sufficient for all of them. 
We, we sit in this room this morning with the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice. And I think sometimes as Christians, we need to understand that. I think sometimes as Christians, we can fall into this habit of, of viewing ourselves as being somehow unredeemable, that somehow God is going to kind of let us into heaven against his own will because we accepted him, but he really doesn't like us and doesn't want anything to do with us, that somehow we have made ourselves so dirty and so unapproachable that he can't use us. But listen to me. When Christ took your sins, he took all your sins all the baggage, all of the garbage that you have in your life. That's why we can say with confidence that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. When Jesus looks at you, he doesn't see you as soiled or dirty or broken. No, our sins are scarlet. He's made us whiter than snow. He was pierced for our transgressions. By his stripes, we're healed. We are actually healed. We are actually forgiven. You sit here, if you know Christ this morning, you sit here as a new creation. And I just want to encourage you this morning that those things that you did, those things that all of us did in our lives, and, and some of us have some really dark stuff in our background. I have some really, really dark stuff in my background. Some things that, that, that haunt me that have tortured me, they're all gone. I, I, I talked to somebody once about my experiences when I was in the military and, and, and I kind of related some of the things that had happened and some of the things that I had done and some of the things that I had encountered. And, and this guy, he, he tried to do what, what a lot of people will do when you, when you begin to talk about your military experiences. He, he said, oh, well, brother, you were, you were in the military. It's, it's okay. It, you know, you, you, were just, you were just defending yourself. It was okay. And I looked at him. I said, you don't have to absolve me. No, none of those things absolves me. I, I, as I watched the stuff in... in in the war in the Ukraine, I'm brought back to the things that I did when I invaded a sovereign country. But, but here's the thing, guys. No matter what you've done, whether, whether your sin is, is doing things you're not proud of in war or being married multiple times or, or not being a great husband or not being a great wife or, or destroying your entire life through pornography or drugs or alcohol or whatever it is that you've done, whatever it is that you have, it's gone it's been paid for. And if we can't accept that, then the sacrifice of Christ means nothing. Guys, you sit here covered in the blood of Christ, forgiven for the things that you've done. But, but there's a flip side to that, right? Because if, if your sins are forgiven... That, that means that the person that you are at war with right now, that their sins are forgiven too. See, because here's the other thing that we do. We either don't forgive ourselves, we definitely don't forgive the other guy, right? How many of us here this morning have some deep, dark thing that we are holding on to that somebody else did to us? Or is that just me? Some, oh, you don't understand, pastor. I just can't forgive them. Well, no, yeah, you can. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you can. 
Because, look, either what they did is going to be punished by God in hell for eternity, at which point you can't do anything worse than separate a person from God for eternity, right? Either, either that's going to happen, because there is justice in the world, guys. Sin is paid for by blood. That person who hurts you, who abused you, who took advantage of you, if they don't have the blood of Christ on them, if they have never been saved, they you could not dream of a punishment worse than what's going to happen to them. Or they've accepted Christ, at which point the lashes on Christ's back and the nails through his hands is sufficient to balance the scales for you. And so as we look at the passion of Christ, as we, as we see him stricken, smitten, stricken, smitten, and afflicted for us, it should free us from the sin in our life and from the memory of that sin. And it should also free us from the need to hate our brother who sinned against us. But most importantly, guys, if we believe, if we believe that this is true, Right? If we believe that we have actually been saved, that Christ actually can save the people around us, then we have an obligation to share the gospel with the people around us. And, and, and I know that I say this, right? We talk about it. We're Baptists. We're big on this. We're big on talking about this. We're not big on doing it, but we're big on talking about it. And so I just want you to think, I want you to ask yourself, when the last time that you shared the gospel with somebody. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't mean when was the last time that you were a nice person so that hopefully they might see the gospel in you somehow and passively be saved through your coolness. <laughs> That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't say, be cool, and then people will come to Jesus, okay? That's not what he says. He says, you are my witnesses. You are his witnesses to this, Okay? You have been placed in the places that you live for this. And, and I'm, I'm going to be honest with you guys. This is not something that I'm great at either. But it's something that I'm trying to do better. I, I think the first step that you take to being his witness, right? The first step that you take is to be actively interested in doing it, Right? Like, you've got to want to do this. You, you can't, like, kind of back into this. You can't just yell the gospel at somebody from the cross, like, hey, are you saved? Cool. <laughs> Me too. Oh, you're not? Hey, Jesus loves you. Cool. I'm out. <laughs> no. You have to get down in the muck and actually share the gospel. So this is what I want you guys to do. I'm not, we're we're going to do this a little at a time, Okay. Okay. What I want you to do right now is I want you to make the commitment in your head, okay? And I'm going to ask you about it next week. Yeah, come on. <laughs> to pray the include me prayer, okay? It's real simple. Here's how it goes. Lord, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, Include me in what you're doing here. It seems super simple. I'll say it again. 
Lord, wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, let me be part of what you're doing here. That is probably the most dangerous prayer that you will ever pray. Okay? Let me give you an example of how dangerous that prayer is. So I've been trying to do that in my neighborhood. If anybody's watching online, yes, I'm doing that in the neighborhood. Okay, so we'll walk around the neighborhood, and I'll engage with people. Usually, I'm not saying y'all are a hard group of people, but when I get home, sometimes I'm so emotionally spent, I don't want to talk to nobody. Okay? It's a real thing. But I've been walking through my neighborhood, and I've been praying for the people that are there. And when I find people that are out on the street, I pray that prayer. So the other day, I go out. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I engage people for the gospel in my neighborhood? And I find a guy, and his, his pipe is broken, and I, when I would normally go to the other side of the street and pretend like he can't see me, I went over to him, and I started talking to him, and I prayed the Lord include me prayer. And I, the entire time we're having this conversation, it turned into a 45-minute conversation, at the end of which this man invites me to a neighborhood group filled with atheists and socialists and him who's a Buddhist. So now I've got to actually show up. So I'm telling y'all, you pray the include me prayer. You don't know where it's going to take you or how it's going to end up. Y'all pray with me now. Dear Lord, God, help us to live in light of your passion. God, help it to transform our lives. Lord, that wherever we are, whatever we're doing, God, that we would be included in mission with you, that you would take us alongside you and show us your glory. God, we want to see people saved. We want to see people transformed. Let us be part of this. God, if there is anyone in this room today who does not know you, who's never accepted you as their Lord and their Savior, and they're covered in their own sin. God, we pray right now that you'd release them, that you would help them to see that your sacrifice was for them. God, that your death was enough, that they don't have to keep working to please you, that they don't have to keep working to try to atone for the sins in their past, that you're enough. Oh God, we ask these things in your holy name. Amen. In a moment... Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.